You're listening to Calvary La Habra's podcast. For more information, visit us at calvarylh.com. Thanks for listening. Well, good evening to you that are here and to, uh, we have no one in the tent tonight. It's just too windy, too cold. So uh, for all you guys that are here and all of you that are online as well, let's welcome our online audience as they are checking us out tonight as well. Um, Before we get started, obviously today we uh, had a shift in our government, and um, I think it's important to be biblical uh, as we are Christians. How many of you guys want to be biblical? Amen? Yes. Uh, In my devotions with our staff today, we we talked about the Holy Spirit, had a little talk about what we learned on Sunday, and um, I I said, you know, it's, it's really important that we get this part down. When you look at Christianity... Um, there are a lot of people who, they're, they're saved, they're going to heaven. Um, but their life, if you look at them in, in a relationship with the third person of the Godhead, with the Holy Spirit, it would be like, um, listen, this is what I'm doing for him. That's one category. And there's a lot of people who really live with that conviction, Christians that just, they're making all of these decisions, but they actually think they're leading and they can actually lead the Holy Spirit. And I said, but then there's just the biblical approach. And it's a group of people that they're not trying to lead the Holy Spirit. They're being led by the Holy Spirit. And when we're led by the Holy Spirit, our lives are going to line up with his word. Our lives are not going to line up with a particular political party. Our lives are not going to line up with all these policies and procedures. A lot of policies from administrations and a lot of philosophy from a particular administration or a political party might support our biblical convictions, but we're Christians, we're the kingdom kids, and we are in love with the king who's coming back for us, and we're going to live our lives with that conviction, amen? And so we, we have the freedom to pray for our governing authorities, no matter who they might be, whether we voted for them or not, with the absolute conviction that this is God's doing, that God allowed this. You know, you can, you can drop below the standard of king, kingdom thinking and just get caught up in every bit of the philosophies of the world and land in one camp or the other, but all you're doing is reducing yourself as a child of God. And I'm not saying that our government is not important. I'm not saying that our country is not important. But we've got to keep it in its proper place. In the kingdom of God, which is in us, which is the king ruling and reigning in our lives, that is the most significant thing about us. And so Romans 13.1 says every... You know, everybody ought to be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And we teach that whether we are excited about a particular, you know, president and the four years that they're serving or not. We teach that because that's what God wants us to understand. Secondly, there's the sovereignty of God that we got to understand this. Part of this is like, our humility, our submission to what God says we should be submitting to. The other side of this is that God is in control. How many of you guys know that God is in control? Is there, is there an election that changes that? No, no. Proverbs 21.1, here's the balance. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. There's the balance. Today I wasn't able to to really watch news and all of that. People were letting me know what was going on with the inauguration and what. And I'll I'll check it out tonight or tomorrow and um, get caught up. But in this season, I've chose not to spend a lot of time um, with things that are intoxicating unless it is spiritual or eternal. And there's some real draw from God when you spend time with him. And it just, he will, he'll take you over, man. He'll win you over. So will politics. So will cable news. And I choose not to have that forming and shaping who I am in this season. I'm informed, but I'm not engulfed. And as I was praying today, and and several times tempted to 
just, I, I want to see, I want to follow. And people were sending me texts. The Lord was like, no, 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 today's your study day. Today it's me and you. You, you need to learn more about me right now. That, it, that's, it's all okay. You're going to figure all that out. And everybody's going to give you every bit of detail you, you want and you don't want. Spend time with me. And the Lord put this on my heart. And it's out of James chapter 5, verse 16. It's over and over and over. Share this tonight, Lance. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman avails much. If you believe that, stand with me right now. And we're going to pray. If you believe that, you really believe that. Evil forces are no match for the power of God that can be unleashed through prayer. Views that do not line up with God's word, God's way, no match. doesn't matter if it's a Republican in office or a Democrat in office. There is corruption at different levels. Amen? You guys understand that, <laughs> all right? But none of that is a, is a match for the power of God that can be unleashed through prayer. So what, is our, what does our country need to be hearing coming out of Christians' mouths right now? Our country needs to hear and see the pleading and the begging of Christians before God on behalf of our country. We need to pray for our, our new president, President Biden, and the whole administration. Because the effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people God does something with it. So, Father, we unite our hearts, and we want to just start off on this day where we've got a new president, President Biden. And, Lord, we ask that you would give us your heart for him, his wife, his family, his administration. I'm sure as Christians we, we can list off all of the policies and positions that we don't agree with in his party and things we've heard him say. Lord, in our hearts sink when we think about the ungodly path that some of our leaders and quite possibly this administration as we really think through what they've been talking about, what it could take us down for our marriages and for the church, for our family and our kids. You're sovereign and you are in control. And we put our trust in you. And Lord, if, if you could just like turn the heart of kings, like just turning water, redirecting water, we pray, Lord, that President Biden and, and, and his administration would find you and be directed by you. It's a simple but a, a profound Life-changing, country-changing, global-changing request. Have mercy, God, we pray. Give him wisdom from above, man. And convict and direct, we pray. And we ask, Lord, that when we talk about him, his administration, that it would not be critical, it would not be with embittered hearts, Fearful hearts, faithful hearts. We would speak as your children, confident in our Father that you are in control. We would speak grace. We would speak truth. And we would stand and defend your word when it is necessary. We will, we will not compromise when the opposition and the challenge comes to compromise your word. We will stand in the strength of the Lord and we will up, uphold your word. And so we pray, Lord, for the season that we are entering into. We pray for our country. Please bring our country back to you. And we just simply ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You may have a seat. Well, this morning as we were talking, our staff and oftentimes my devotions are just open conversations. Um, I don't know who it was. One of them asked, you know, hey, what are you teaching tonight? Where are we going? And, and, and I'm like, well, I'm kind of up in the air on a few things, and I've been reading a few things. I like to muse over things with the Lord. And 
And so a couple of them began to talk about the Song of Solomon. When are we going to get into the Song of Solomon? And I said, well, let me, let me tell you why I haven't just jumped into that. Well, COVID is one of those reasons. But, um, and, and, I, and I began to think about it, and I just said, well, there's these different takes on the book and stuff. And I, I realized that there was really something in my heart that God had been stirring. And so tonight we are going to begin the Song of Solomon. So it's the last of the poetic books in the Old Testament. So you can turn your way there. If you get to like Job, that's the first poetic book. Then you go into Psalms then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, and then we come to Song of Solomon. These are poetic books. I remember starting the book of Psalms. It was a, it was a daunting task. It was, it was warmer weather. I had worked probably three weeks, four weeks on an introduction, so I could at least summarize and whet the appetites of the, of the folks, you guys, to where you'd want to keep coming back for, I don't know, the next three years. And so as we were talking about this, we had this really beautiful weather, and I remember we, we, we went outside, and we had all these recording issues and everything, and I just remember looking at this, and as we went through it, I said, this is so rich. There is so much to learn. And, and I just felt the Lord say, be disciplined. Walk through this. Be patient through this. Year after year after year. And when we were finished with um, the book of, of Psalms, Lori's really encouraging me to finish. Like there's a couple of books in the Bible I haven't taught, the major prophets. And I, I remember Pastor Chuck, you know, he used to teach through the Bible every so many years. And he does a lot of reading. I like to go in a little bit deeper um, and so he would get through it, and every time they'd finish the Bible, they'd have a cake, a big Bible-shaped cake. And so when we finished the Psalms, I asked Lori, I said, can I have the Bible-shaped cake right now? You know, we had the Bible-shaped cake, and, and I was so excited to finally get through it. I, I think it took us almost five years. But then we got into Proverbs, and it was so rich in the wisdom and the, the challenge for the body. And you could just see it was exactly what we needed, just like Proverbs, just like Psalms. Got into Ecclesiastes. And it was just so fit and so timely. And I just believe it's, it's the Lord. I mean, it, sometimes I think, well, it really doesn't matter what we're going through. Um, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about learning from him and learning about him. And so um, as we get into this last of the five poetic books, I, I want to give an introduction tonight. We'll probably get to the first chapter, but I do want you to know that that this book, as we go through it, um, it, it is going to be taught at a PG level. And so if you're cool talking about sex sitting next to your parents, then hang out with us. If you're like, I don't want to sit next to my parents while Pastor Lance breaks down all this passion and, and, and romance and just, we're talking... It's going to get hot in the collar around here. Then you might want to go sit somewhere else in the sanctuary. If there's kids here, you're like, I don't want my kids to hear right now the very detailed, intimate conversation between Solomon and what they believe to be his first wife, the Shulamite. And it is detailed. It is graphic. Then we do have child care available. And I would highly encourage you taking your children over there, unless you want to be up every night answering a lot of really interesting questions. So there's your warning, okay? I also want you to know that this is very much for single people as much as it is for married people. This is very much for the person who's like, I'm not sure who I'm going to marry or when I'm going to get married or if I'm never going to get married. It's as much for that person as it's for the person that's been married for a number of years. It's as much for the person that has ruled out marriage for the person that is marriage, married. It's as much for the person that's seen a marriage implode as the person that hasn't. These are wise words from Solomon, inspired words from Solomon that are designed to enrich our lives as we 
study the topic of marriage as we who are married experience marriage. It is designed to enrich our marriages. So having said that, I think we're going to venture down probably just three or four weeks, just eight chapters, and, and it's going to be fun. It's going to be um, passionate. It's going to be challenging. And it's going to be very much equipping. It's something that will equip us. So scholars have different views as to how to interpret the Song of Solomon. It's interpreted by some as an allegory. It's interpreted by others as all of these extended types that these people, they represent their types of that are in the narrative. Others say it's a real-life drama involving either two or three main characters. Jewish tradition, as we read through the, the Mishnah or the Talmud or the Targum, they, they view the, the book. They look at the Song of Solomon, and they look at it as an allegorical picture of a loving relationship between God and the nation of Israel. And you can go through the book of Song of Solomon, and you can read it, and go, yeah, I can see how that would fit, for the most part. <laughs> a lot of our early church leaders, Jerome, Augustine, they, they, they viewed the book as an allegory of Christ's love for his bride, the church. Origen, one of the early church fathers, he wrote that the beloved's reference to her, her dark skin as an example, we'll get to that in verses 5 and 6, is a, it's, it's like really talking about the darkness of sin upon the church. And he begins to talk about her loveliness. He's talking about when God you know, cleanses and purifies the church. And the, the focus in that is, is pretty cool because the focus is on Christ. And the Bible does say that the volume of the book testifies of him. And throughout the book, there are some specific things like, oh yeah, you can see how that definitely speaks of Christ and his relationship to the church. So it fits. Some scholars, other scholars, they view the book of Song of Solomon as, as, a, as an extended type. In other words, Solomon himself, they say, is a type of Christ, and the beloved that he's talking to and interacting with is a type of the church. So you might have some of this in your notes if you have a study Bible or whatnot, but that really doesn't, doesn't fit because nowhere in Scripture do we have any indication that, you know, Solomon's life is divinely intended as a type of Christ. That's kind of a reach on that one. But the interpretation, as I've read this and studied this, that I like, is that the Song of Solomon is a book that exalts and commends human love within the confines of marriage. It expresses love. It expresses desire. It expresses passion between a bride and a bridegroom. In the early part, in chapter 1, they're, they're, they're basically, if you really you read through it, you get the sense that they, they are married, and they're, they're talking at different times early on in their marriage about their courtship. That's one reference we're going to see, one area of their life that they're going to look at. That's maybe through the first couple of chapters, it goes back and forth a little bit. And all they're doing is they're reflecting back on their courtship. And that's really in chapters 1 all the way to the beginning of chapter 3. Then at the beginning of chapter 3 through chapter 1, it focuses a little bit more on, on the wedding itself and the maturing that takes place in marriage itself. So courtship, wedding, maturing in marriage. And then you get into chapter 8, and it really begins to hone in on the nature of love. And then the latter part of chapter 8, 8 through 14 in there, it begins to conclude by explaining how love of the couple 
in, 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 in this song how it all began. We're going to meet a young girl, a Shulamite. And we're going to see how she enters into a relationship with King Solomon. The background is that King Solomon falls in love with this young girl that is from the north, this area called Shulam. He falls in love with her. Solomon goes to the north. He's on the down low. He doesn't go in the, the, with, with a procession of a king, with the array of a king. He's just traveling. And as he's traveling, there's a working class girl working a field that catches his eye. And it's just one of those like, that's her. That's, that's the one. She's working in her family vineyard. <laughs> and, and it was like, that's the one for me. He returns to Jerusalem. As we go through the narrative, as we go through the song, and he's like, I'm going to go back. And I'm going to go back. And he does in all of his splendor. And he brings her back and he marries her. It's awesome that God includes in his word a book, a book in the Bible that endorses and celebrates the beauty of marriage, the purity of marriage, the intimacy of marriage. We know that God created man and woman back in Genesis chapter 1. He established and sanctioned marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And we know that, that since then, Satan has tried to pervert and distort and destroy marriage. And the world has signed on to his plan. And the, wor the world is trying to pervert God's plan called marriage trying to exploit marriage. And that's why so many marriages are crumbling. Marriage is a sacred institution. It's important we understand this as we get into this. Sacred in that it's something that God himself established. Anything that God establishes is sacred. Sacred in that God, the giver of life, united one man and one woman that he created with the gift of life, and he brought them together in this very unique relationship that he is the architect of, that he designed, that he formed, and he made them one. Again, anything that God does is sacred. And whatever we do within the bounds the boundaries within the idea, the idea of marriage, whatever we do in living out our roles as a husband and wife, those roles, those requests, those commands that God requires of us, those actions are sacred. We have these beautiful wedding ceremonies. And, and, and man, by the time you get up here and we're reading the scripture and we're singing the song, we're taking communion, there's, it's, it's a sacred moment. It's, I, there's just, it, next to people getting saved, and you know, just, this is a very sacred thing. We have our communion service, it's a sacred thing. Marriage, this is something God is doing. He's taking two people, they walk in the room as two, they leave as, as one. It's a trippy thing. And sometimes we look at that, and even as we're sitting here as married people, we get that, yeah, we're reminded this is a sacred thing. But when a husband loves his wife 15 years later, just as Christ loved the church, and however he did that, that, that act that day is just as sacred as those two people standing up there and committing their lives through giving vows to God to one another. For a wife, in 1 Peter chapter 3, to just focus on her inner beauty and just everything that God has called her to be in Ephesians 5 in the role of submitting to her husband. All, every time she does that, that is just as sacred 
that act, as, as that coming together on that stage. When a couple comes together romantically, intimately, in the confines of marriage, the passion, the expression, the devotion, the commitment that is designed by God within the union of that couple being intimate is just as sacred as anything else we will do as Christians. It's just sacred. So what we are doing is we are, we are entering and walking upon some very sacred ground as we go through the Song of Solomon. And look at it as that. Be free. Be okay with that. We live in a world that has taken what is godly and holy and righteous and pure and look at what Hollywood has done front with it. You're not going to want to walk out of this room in shame and go, I can't believe I'm watching or listening to that right now. But how many times have you as a Christian had to tune something out or turn it off as it relates to sex or marriage because Hollywood or whatever has done what they do with it? It's repulsive. It's shameful. And you don't want to be identified with that. But this, this is different. This is something that God has done. This is his doing. And it's an awesome, beautiful thing that God would just devote these eight chapters. He'd be like, I am going to just put this part, my word, my heart, as it relates to the passion and the intimacy of human love in the bonds of marriage right here in the center of my book. It's nothing to be ashamed about. The author of Song of Solomon, of course, is Solomon. Several verses here will refer to him by name. The date, the time that this would be written would be during Solomon's reign, somewhere around 971 B.C. to 931 B.C. And there are a lot of people who wonder how Solomon could be the author of a book that extols faithfulness in marriage when he was so, I don't know, 300 wives and 700 wives, excuse me, and 300 concubines later, you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. We read about that in 1 Kings chapter 13. But many scholars believe that the beloved in the Song of Solomon is a reference to his first wife. And if so, then the book may have been written soon after his marriage before he fell into the sin of polygamy. Verse 1. The song of songs, which Solomon's, which is Solomon's. Solomon, again, is the third king of the nation of Israel. Again, he ruled from 971 to 931 B.C. We know that he was gifted with great wisdom. We know that he was gifted with great oratory skills. We know that he was gifted with great literary skills. More than any other man. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. You go through the book of Proverbs and just... You read a couple of them, you're like, this is so deep. Let me read it again. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. And he was quite the songwriter. It says in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, that he wrote 1,005 songs. How many of you guys have written a song? How many of you guys have written a proverb? You know? It's a wise guy. Over 1,000 songs. But this song is seen by Solomon as his best, the song of songs. And that might be because of the majesty of the theme. The real theme is love. Some of us thought that love songs weren't written until the 60s. The whole Marvin Gaye song, you know, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, or Billy Joel in the 70s, I just, you know, I love you just the way you are. 
I remember in the 80s, I loved the song by Lionel Richie and Diana Ross, My Endless Love, used to move me to tears. Some think that love songs begin with love songs on the coast, Coast 103.5. But love songs have been around forever. People were captivated by love and love songs 3,000 years ago, just as much as they are today. And, and Solomon is basically saying, you know, as a, as a good songwriter, he's like, hey, this song is at the top of the charts. It's the song of songs. One of the reasons, again, is the theme. Another reason would be, I believe, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And out of his 1,005 songs that Solomon would write, only this one was designated by God to be included in his word, the song of of songs indeed. The title Song of Songs also tells us that this is one song out of many songs. We don't view the work as a collection of songs, but rather as one unified song. And the word Song of Psalms as well could be like a superlative. It's like the most holy. It's, it, it, he's looking at it as something that's very sacred. Very, very sacred. And so as we move through the verses here, these next few verses, learning about this song, one of the 100 or 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote, we move first of all into what we're going to see is, you know, they're, they're going to talk a bit about their, their, their courtship. And as they do, they're going to they're talk about it as married people. And, and they're going to they're gonna be talking about the, the, the marriage and the courtship. And there's going to be all kinds of expression of sexual desire. And yet at the same time, as they're talking about the courtship, they're going to be talking about great restraint being exercised as lovers. But after the wedding procession, and they kind of get to that in chapter 3, th there's a notable absence of sexual restraint in the song. So this points us to the fact that in romantic courtship, restraint ought to be used. But the passion is there. As we go through this, this whole song, remember again, that, that, that God wants us to embrace this. This is his view of what he designed for love to be within the, the confines of courtship leading to marriage and then the confines of love once they are married. And that's where sexual desire then moves into sexual practice once they're married. Remember that the physical and the emotional aspects of marriage are God's idea. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God created man from his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, when God looked at Adam and Eve, what option did he give them to be fruitful and multiply? He gave them one way. Sexual relationship, a gift from God to them. Then we move into Genesis chapter 2, 21 through 25. And there we see this whole thing take place. God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He sleeps. He takes one of his ribs, closes up the flesh in its place. The rib which the Lord God take, take, taken out of Adam, he made into the woman. He brings her to the man. Adam then talks about this. This Pointing to Eve, is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, 
and they were not ashamed. God created marriage. It's pre-fall in the Bible. God created sex to be exercised within the confines of marriage. It's pre-fall in the Bible. And it's a gift from God that God expects to be exercised in the realm of a marriage relationship. And so as the architect of marriage, as the architect of sexual relationships, God has the right to define the parameters. He knows how it works. The architect knows how it works. He knows what works, and he's designed what works. And he blesses what he designed to work. Anything outside the parameters of what he has created and what he has given to mankind will not work. The world thinks that they are experts on sex. They are not. God is. He's the architect. What we have before us in the Song of Solomon is full of uninhibited passion from God as God designed for sexual enjoyment in the marriage relationship. So the Shulamite, she speaks. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. So the Song of Solomon begins with the Shulamite woman, and she's expressing something. She's expressing her strong desire for her lover, Solomon's, physical affection. Yes, we learn right off the bat, husbands and wives should have strong desire for each other's physical affection. And yes, if you are a teenager, your parents should still have strong sexual desire and strong desire for physical affection for one another. And if you are married and you have your own kids and you go visit your parents and their grandparents, those grandparents, <laughs> do still God-given gift is on fire. God-given gifts are, desired, are, are designed to be utilized. And that desire and that passion, until he takes that away when you're just like Abraham and Sarah's age, that's, that's, that's what he intended. And that desire is not something that like God just puts in you and it grows on its own. God puts that in us. And now we have the ability. They're just married and she's just talking about like on her honeymoon night reflecting upon like the man of her dreams. And if she wants to say the same thing and they want to talk about the same thing 30 years later they're going to have to do something about that. They're going to have to keep courting one another. They're going to have to keep showing affection towards one another. They're going to have to keep winning over one another. They're going to have to keep building romance into their relationship. They're going to have to prioritize their relationship. They're going to have to stay loyal in that relationship. Because what we're going to see is her affection is just not some mis-aimed, misguided feelings. It's aimed at a specific man who became something specific in her life. And it was God-given. And it moved her. Her desire was for the physical affection of her husband. And it should work both ways in the marriage. She desires his kisses. She's thinking of her wedding day. She's in love. His love expressed to her through his kissing her is better than wine. 
wine throughout Scripture always speaks of joy, pleasure. Just, just Solomon kissing his wife. She's, she's like, I just, I, I, I can't help. It's sweet upon my lips. It has an intoxicating effect on this gal. Him pursuing her and showing her affection. It moves her. It was exhilarating. It was, a, it was refreshing. And it was a great source of joy. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore the virgins love you. Oh, draw me away. The pleasing aromas of his perfume made him even more attractive to her. His love excites her senses. There are some guys around the church who wear some interesting cologne. I hugged a guy recently. I'm like, dude, you smell really good. He's like, hey. He says, you know, I, 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 I just haven't showered yet today, but I put on extra, like, just underarm deodorant. I'm like, really? You smell kind. What kind? It smells good. Then there's guys that they have some stuff on. I'm like, someone needs to talk to that brother. <laughs> Teach his own. I get it. But then there's times, and we all know Pastor Stan Mitchell. That guy wears a cologne that when I smell him, I want to kiss him. <laughs> I was asked Stan, Where'd you, get, where'd you get that? He's like, You like it, huh? I got it for Gina. Guys, you should, you should have somewhere, you write down in your mind, you should have in your mind the place where you keep something that moves your wife affectionately. Because she's wired that way, and you have the opportunity to move her that way. You've got to care. You really have to care about her. You gotta care that it, it 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 draws her towards you. We're talking about just arousing her senses of smell. Like, well, I really that you move me. It's interesting here. He says, Your name is ointment poured forth. She compared his name even to perfume. A person's name in those days represented his character, represented his reputation. And so there's just the whole, like, I'm moved by this smell, but then there's also a representation she's wanting us to understand. She's comparing Solomon's name to perfume. She's like saying it meant that his character was also pleasing and attractive to her. It's the idea. Fragrance is one thing. But then she just goes right into the character of the man. You smell amazing. I just really want to lay a kiss on you when I smell you, you know, and, and, and not stop there kind of thing. But then when I think about you, you have been winning me over with the, the details of ointments and whatnot. When I think about you, I think about your character. That moves me. She was pleased. She was attracted. Someone just mentions his name in a room. And the Shulamite woman who just married Solomon, her heart would flutter. Remember those days? For this reason, she said many were attracted to him. Therefore, the virgins love you. The daughters of Jerusalem, we'll see that pop up. We'll run after you. We'll talk more about them in a minute. Then the Shulamite speaks again. The king has brought me into his chambers. And so the wedding is over. The wedding feast is over. 
And now she's recalling him bringing her into the bride, or into his chambers on their wedding night. The daughters of Jerusalem here are the attendants. They're her best friends. Um, Throughout the song, they're like a choir that chimes in a few times. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. What's going on, it's kind of a reflection of Solomon and the Shulamites' love and their marriage and who they are, the character of who they are in the marriage, reflecting. It's, it's impacting these. So whenever they chime in, it's usually like, oh, we see something, and they chime in. Oh, we, 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 oh, wow, look at this. And they're moved by that. They're watching, they're observing. They're not married themselves, but they're absolutely moved by marriage because of how in love Solomon and the Shulamite woman are. The love that they've expressed. They're not married, so they don't know personally, firsthand anything about marriage. But they're excited about their friend's marriage. And it moves them. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We'll remember your love more than, than wine. And anything that brings joy to our life, you, watching you guys in love, fills our heart with joy. The Shulamite says, rightly do they love you. She considers herself the luckiest of women on the face of the planet because of her husband. Not that he's a king. It's not what she's talking up. She's talking up his character. How he won her over. She feels like she's the luckiest woman, the most blessed woman on the planet. So when she calls him king, it's not in the literal sense. It's just, it's the language of love. Going to his chamber implies that it's just, it's the wedding night. And that's where he takes me. He's the king on his wedding night. And in verses 5 through 6, she begins to describe the wedding night. Her wedding night from her perspective. And it's interesting. Verse 5, I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, the tents of Kedar, their, their, their tents were black. Like the curtains of Solomon, the, the, the curtains of Solomon were made of goat's hair. They also were dark. Do not look upon me because I'm dark. Because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, speaking of her own personal appearance, I've, I've, not, I've not kept. What's going on here? She's reflecting honestly, humbly, about her wedding night. And she's like, man, I, I was just like really self-conscious on my wedding night. Most are, at least a little bit. But Solomon sees no imperfection in her, as we'll read on. But how he thinks and how she thinks is very different on this first night. And just so you know, men and women that are yet to be married, you too will think very differently about each other on your first night and every other night from then on. Just the way it is. We're different people, man and woman. Today, a, a good tan is something we pursue to look healthy and, you know, to, to look, you know, more happening. <laughs> but in, 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 in those days, that was not the case. In those days, a healthy person stayed out of the sun. To, to have a tan was, well, that's, that's what... The farmers had. Even they, in those days, farmers had farmer tans. And so the lower class, the working class, she's married to a king. And this is the first night that she's showing her body to her husband. And she's thinking back 
of how just it was it was it, it was I'm self-conscious because here's the king and now he's seeing my tan body which again in that culture it made her feel less because she was a farmer now married to the king Now she is recalling her first days, their courtship, their, when they first met in verse 7, to her beloved, tell me, O oh, you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. So when she first met Solomon, Solomon was dressed so down that she thought he was just a simple shepherd. She was stricken, though, by what she saw in that simple shepherd. That, that, that whole, who is that? Who is that over there? For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your, of your companions? And she's like, when I saw you, you were just this simple shepherd, but I just was like, oh, wait. My heart started to flutter. I'm like, who is that guy? And, and it was like, <coughs> if I don't meet this guy, I'm going to go into mourning. That's what the veil is all about. She remembers that, how she just had to meet her husband, how she just couldn't take her eyes off of him, how, how she was just moved by him when she first met him. Then the beloved Solomon responds, verse 8. If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. And so Solomon's referring to the hints that he gave her when they first met as to how he could be found. He wasn't about to let her go. So I'm not sure what details he gave her, but he gave her some hints as to how she could find him in the future. How fun is that? For you younger married people here, you know how oftentimes you might lay in bed as a married couple and muse over the times that you first met. Lori and I, on each of our anniversaries now, will oftentimes lay down together and, and talk about our lives and, and you know, we've been married 33 years, so now we have a lot of life to talk about. And we're older, so we fall asleep earlier. So, but, but oftentimes we find ourselves just talking about the early days. And we'll drive up to, to where her parents live in, in that area. They live in Upland, and we met in Claremont. And oftentimes we'll go past the gas station that we met in. And, and it, we've always enjoyed doing that with the girls. And that's, you know... That's where your mom chased your dad down and found him, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. We always talk about that's where we met, and, and that's where God divinely led us, and, and, and we, we, we saw something in each other right there at that gas station. Be able to recount together how you met, how you fell in love. And then Solomon, he's going to be building her up and complimenting her in verse 9. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, some of you girls are like, huh? Didn't he just come out and compare her to a horse? Don't do that. He went on and said, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. The idea is that when he says, I compare you, my love, to my, my personal filly, among Pharaoh's chariots. All of, all of Pharaoh's chariots would have been pulled by stallions, every one of them. And to have a female horse, a filly, just around all of those other stallions, that would have been unique. And the first thing he says to his bride, who's feeling a little bit insecure, and a little self-conscious. He's like, listen, out of all of what I could have had as a king, you were the most unique thing I've ever laid eyes on. I just said, have you? 
What a blessing. What, what a, what a, to hear that she was a standout in the eyes of her husband. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your, your neck with chains of gold. You know, how beautiful she is. Dressed to the nines, as we say. It, it moved Solomon when he thought back about their wedding night and how she had arrayed herself and, and, and <coughs> all of this. Then the daughters of Jerusalem again, her friends will call them as they chime in. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of, of silver. So as, as they're, you know, at one time or another observing them, they were, they'd be like, they just couldn't agree more. So much that they would even go make more jewelry for her. If he likes this and blesses, is blessed by this, then we're going to invest in that. And the Shulamite, she now rejoices that they, they get to sleep together all night long. While the king is at the table, my spike nerd sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi. In those days, it was common for women... When, whether it was the night of their marriage or a night that they wanted to be intimate with their husbands, it was, it was common practice in those days that they would give different spices and different oils. And they would, they would put them in these, these cloths that exuded the aroma of those spices and those oils. And they would tuck them down into their breasts. And they would wear them all night long, or all day long, excuse me, so that when their husband came home or on their wedding night, they would show how much they were waiting for him. The aroma of love, you might say, was, was like now protruding from this, this wife. And this is what she says. It's not just that I get to be intimate with you. That, that was great. But as I reflect, I, you're mine. I'm yours. Unlike the world that has these little pit stops of intimacy that is perverted and ungodly and immoral, this is God's way. This is what God blesses. And here we have a picture from one of those that, that just knew God had arranged her marriage and brought her husband to her and her to her husband. And she's like, how awesome is this that we get to come together and we don't have to go home? Again, when we go about it God's way, when we are expressing the wonder of marital love as he's designed, man, you're just, you're blessed and you're into blessing and winning over your spouse in the most intimate for them ways. You can't miss it here. She's elated to bless him. She's elated to spend the night with him, to prepare for him, to show him how special he is to her, how special their marriage is. This is real, significant commitment here. This is not selfish, self-seeking, pleasure-seeking, non-commental kind of thing that the world experiences with sex. There are so many wonderful God-given experiences that God wants mankind to enjoy. So many. So many people settle for the defiled lies of the world. The world thinks it has a corner on the market of sex. And they're nowhere close. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable among all. In the bed, a euthanism there of sexual intimacy is to be undefiled or kept pure. It's like 
The writer of Hebrews is there's like God created sex for procreation and, and pleasure and the expression of love between a husband and a wife within the confines of marriage. It can't be any more sacred. God taking one life, that's sacred. Taking another life, that's sacred. Bringing them together as one, that's sacred. And from them now, sexual intimacy in the confines of that relationship, that's sacred. What they would produce if God would so bless them, her egg, his seed, coming together with a life. What could be more sacred than that? It's sacred stuff. Any kind of sexual activity outside of that is not sacred. The writer of Hebrews says God will judge that. God warns us because he loves us. Know that Satan wants to rob us of anything that God has for us, including in our marriage. Do it God's way, I wrote in my lines, my Bible, my notes. Do it God's way, and you get your wedding night for the rest of your lives. Just think through that. Do it God's way, and you get your wedding night for the rest of your lives. God's way. You get to have intimacy, sex. You're with the person that God brought into your life, this sacred thing. Sacred things feel sacred to those that are blood-bought. You get to fall asleep in the arms of something that is sacred. You get to wake up. You know there's no bad breath in Christian marriages? We laugh for a reason. Do it God's way and you get your wedding night for the rest of your life. An intimacy that God blesses. A commitment that grows in meaning and significance more than any other human relationship. You get to wake up with the same person, live with the same person, be loved and cared for by the same person, love and care for the same person. Grow in loyalty, grow in commitment, grow in love with the same person. We're going to stop here because I have a zero, but that's my clock. But they're going to go through this back and forth now through chapter two of just reassuring one another. And um, we'll stop there because it, it starts to get pretty passionate and we need to leave. Let's all stand. Okay, you guys like the approach? So if you're watching online, the sound just cut off right now. Father, thank you for marriage. Thank you for love. Thank you for what you do when we go about marriage your way. As we asked you on Sunday as it related to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we asked that you would clean the slate of our heart as it related to that relationship so we could have a fresh new start with you, Holy Spirit. I pray, we pray for every marriage here, first of all, the same prayer. You would clean the slate of our heart, preconceived ideas, failures, struggles, things that we've just settled for, things that we should have never settled for. Remove anything we pray from our marriage that would keep you from making our marriages what you've intended them to be. Please, Lord. As we go through the Song of Solomon, grow our passion, our love, loyalty, commitment. We pray for every single person here. I, I, I pray for those Lord, that, that, that desire to be married and whatever preconceived ideas they have about that, that you would just, maybe they're, just concluded the wrong things. Like they'll never get married. They'll never find All that stuff that the enemy would pile up in their heart, in their heart, their, their heads. Remove that, please. For those that are just, they've got some 
perfect idealistic kind of view of what the person should be that they're going to marry and all these preconceived things, Lord, that if any of that, who and when, if, yes, no, on marriage, all of that I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, these single people can let it go. Please, Jesus. Just as they surrender to you right now, may the pride go. May the fear go. May the lack of hope go. May the discouragement go to where they can be free, much like Solomon and the Shulamite woman, to just be led by you and find the right person from you at the right time. Clean the slate of those hearts. So you can direct us all, Lord, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, God bless you guys. We will conclude our studies in the book of Acts on Sunday morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 1. I don't remember how far I got. I think I got like one verse or something. So we'll go 1 through 8. Love you guys. God bless.